Well, good morning. Ooh, that always surprises me. Good morning, everybody. You have everybody about 10 to 30 seconds to get to the seats. Super, Super Bowl Sunday, I'm glad everybody's here. Uh, I was worried the parking lot would be slammed and taken up by who knows who with people trying to park here, you know, tailgating and the like. Thankfully, that's not the case. All right, we will start with prayer and we will get into it. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Father in heaven, thank you that you do draw us up from the pit of destruction and put our feet upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, quiet our hearts and minds, hear what your word has to say through the person of your Holy Spirit, uh, and that we would be encouraged by what your word has to say to us. I pray, Father, that you would help me as, um, to relay the message appropriately and what your word actually conveys, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. Well, uh, from last week, we spent a lot of time with, some of the, with a lot of the background on what is this book, what is its genre, who wrote it. There was, uh, as I understand, a pretty good bit of controversy that we made the statement that it may, in fact, not have been Solomon, and that it may have been written either during or post the exile in Babylon to encourage the believing Jewish uh, or um, those returning to Judah, uh, the Hebrews coming out of Babylon in uh, confronting the philosophy of the Babylonians and the Greeks um, as they're coming out and coming back to the promised land to reestablish um, Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Um, it's possible that that is, and, and that's sort of the likely thing that I'm going to take right here. And so just to kind of remind everybody and why that was so important is why are we supposed to think that, or why do I want to look at it from that lens, is we are tempted, I think, to read the book of Ecclesiastes thinking it was written by Solomon and to interpret it as we would interpret the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at things there and try to immediately draw those things out and apply them and apply the principles like we do the Proverbs. And we think, well, this is a, this is a believer talking to us for us to apply these things uh, just like we would a, a proverb or a principle and learn from that. Well, then we start to see things like, well, the dead dog is better, or I'm sorry, a dead lion, sorry, a living dog is better than a dead lion. And we start to see things about the wicked prospering, and we start to see things about things are vain. And we go, wait a minute, um, that's a little weird. Why are we looking at that way, and why is it being said? And there's no kind of hopeful message on the backside. And so if we look at it through a different lens, and that lens is, well, it, if it was not written by Solomon, then who was it written by? We don't know for sure. Uh, it still may have been written by Solomon. That is a possibility. But I'm going to approach this as though it was not. It was written for somebody in Solomon, written by someone in Solomon's voice uh, to instruct the exiles returning from Babylon. Therefore, what we should read this like is not like the Proverbs, but rather like the book of Job. If you recall, when we look at the book of Job, at the very beginning, we see the counsel of God, 
and we see Satan coming before God and God's counsel saying, hey, look at this guy, Job. He only is there and worships you because you are good to him. Let me take a crack at this. And we get to see that as the reader. Then we see the rest of the story unfold, how Job has bad things happen to him, caused by Satan, allowed by God. And then we see him interact with his friends, and his friends tell him things like, this is happening to you because you were unrighteous. Bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, therefore repent, and then good things will happen to you again. And we know from the beginning of that book that that's not the message we're supposed to get from that. We are not supposed to walk away from Job thinking, oh yeah, as long as I do good things, God will bless me. As long as I stop doing bad things, you know, good things will continue. No, that's not what the message is supposed to be. And we know that because we have two bookends for that. At the beginning, we see the counsel of God. At the end, God speaks out of the whirlwind to Job's friends, rebukes them, rebukes Job saying, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I created the creatures in the world? Can you do anything to these creatures because they're bigger and more powerful than you are? And then Job repents. And so we see that the message of Job isn't that, hey, if you do good things, good things will happen to you, but rather God is sovereign, or that's one of the main messages we're supposed to take away from it. And so if, in fact, Ecclesiastes is framed the same way, which is why we spent so much time going on if it's a two authors or one, if it's two, you've got one author at the beginning and kind of bookending it at the end in chapter 12. It could be one who changes his voice. Either is, in a, a, is, in a, legitimate, is a legitimate way to approach that. Then we have the same framed setup as we have in Job. Um, we see in the text, in the very first uh, part, and we'll get to this in a second, how the, inter the, the narrator will introduce the concept of what you're about to see is somebody who's saying that life is vain. And then you see that claim made in great detail, looking at a couple of different concepts, which we'll look at two of those today. And at the very end, he says, now fear God and obey his commandments. To snap you back to reality, to go, nope, well, all that was just somebody having some serious worry and trying to deal with it and thinking on paper. So think of it that way, and if we approach the text that way, then we're not looking at some of that going, oh, man, how am I supposed to apply this? I don't know what to do with this. And so that is what we're going to kind of go and look at today. This will also help us to kind of understand what our culture is approaching us with, because this looks very similar to the way we think, right? I see a thing. I'm frustrated with this thing. I'm going to draw this conclusion based on my observations. That's a Western way of thought. That's not necessarily how a but a um, Yahweh-believing Jew would have approached reality. He or she would have looked for revelation and then interpreted what you are seeing through that revelation, not necessarily going, I am going to observe the world and try to determine what's going on. That's a Western way of thought, which we're being confronted with here, and we're told, nope, fear God and obey his commandments at the end. And so what we're going to do today, and I have to credit my wife for this. She said, if you just try to do this, no one's going to follow you. Uh, so tell everybody what you're going to do. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a closer look at a couple of things in the book that the preacher, remember, um, uh, let me pr make sure I pronounce this right because I apparently pronounced it improper last time, uh, Kaheleth, that is Hebrew for the preacher. So what does the preacher say? We're going to take a look at chapter 2 and chapter 7. And what I'm going to do is present that to you all and say, do we not identify with this? Does this not resonate with us? 
right? Do we not see these things, and are we not equally frustrated about these things just like the author is? I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to go and show you that, yes, we identify with this, and yes, we understand that the world is broken, but we can't necessarily fully buy into this way this guy thinks because I will present the rest of the story to you in that this author is obsessed with death and whether or not while he is thinking about life in the shadow of death as it were, is this life meaningful or is it hopeless? That is kind of how his train of thought goes. And so my encouragement to you will be to not go all the way into this guy's way of thinking, but take this way of thinking, acknowledge that we can think like this ourselves, get lost in it, and be equally hopeless. And we will show where we should go at the end. So kind of pay attention for that. That's what we're actually going to do. So to kind of dive right in, we are introduced to this character by the voice of a narrator. And so my contention is that chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 are not necessarily the preacher's voice because it's in the third person. The words of the preacher, vanities, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. So somebody is introducing us to the character. This guy is the preacher. And then in chapter 1, verse 12, we see I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And so there the the author, the preacher, picks up in the first person. So what does he say? What is it said that he is going to say? Chapter 1, starting with verse 1, I'll kind of read until um, a logical conclusion. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the winds return. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. That's his message in a nutshell. So to start out with, we do have to engage with this word vanity. What does that word mean? Well, that is uh, our English translation in the ESV of the Hebrew word hebel. And if I mispronounce that, I apologize. Uh, Habel literally means breath, wind. This is used 38 times in the whole text of the book. Um, and it's kind of got a range of meanings. Uh, if you think breath, wind, you think things that are temporary, things that don't last very long. But in context, how do I interpret it? Obviously, we translate it in the ESV as the word vanity, and it's not, you know, I am vain as in I look at myself in the mirror and think I'm a pretty good-looking guy. I don't think that, by the way. Uh, but it's not quite that, and so we think, well, vanity or meaningless, something that is totally meaningless. Other scholars kind of interpret it on a big range, uh, frustration, vexation, are other ways that people uh, interpret that or uh, contextualize that. The two ones uh, that I most um, read during the preparation for this uh, characterized it this way. It's either 
utterly meaningless because it's said twice. It's not just the vanity, it's the vanity of vanities, right? You know, um, Sproul will kind of engage with this and go, it's, he's not the man, he's a man among men. He's not the king, he's the king of kings, right? It's a superlative. There's a, there's a point being made here with the repetition. This is the vanity of vanities, meaning it's not just meaningless, it's completely meaningless. Meaninglessness of meaninglessness. That's one way to take it. Another way to take it would be enigma. Everything is enigmatic. It's the enigma of enigmas. I just can't figure it out. So if I interpret it that way, you can look at the whole text, and every time you see vanity, you can put an enigma in there and say, there may be a meaning here, but I don't know, and I cannot figure it out. I just don't know, right? Which can be pretty frustrating. Or there is no meaning, right? If, it's, if there may be a meaning, but I don't know, and I can't know if there is one, the other end of the spectrum is, or just to go further on the spectrum to the right, I suppose, would be utterly meaningless. There is no meaning, though I try to find it, I never will because it's not there, and I'm going to kind of trail off into nihilism. I'm just going to shake my fist at this, which is, it sort of casts the shadow on the whole book. And the way the interpreters are going to look at this, they're going to go, well, normally what we would do is we would take a look at the word and then see how it's used in the book, and then we would make that kind of cast the meaning that way. But it can be a symbiotic relationship, right? So I can go, well, either the word sets the tone for the book or the book sets the tone for the word. Either can be used there. And so realize that that can happen. If I replace, the, uh, replace vanity with enigma or replace vanity with utter meaninglessness, we can read it with a different tone. And one could be slightly hopeful and one is totally despairing, right? So realize there's a range which you can apply that right there. I'm gonna take a bit of a middle ground with sort of like a meaninglessness, maybe enigma, but it's again, not a declarative statement on what we know to be true in this life. We have meaning in Christ, more on that in a second. But what is this author saying and what is he attempting to convey? It could be either. And we'll just kind of leave it there because the point I think would be the same. It's just how much despair are you willing to assign to the author's uh, words? And so now let's kind of turn to chapter two. We're gonna take a zoomed in look on chapter two verses 18 through 24. And then after that chapter seven verses one through 23. Remember what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna present this to you and go, yes, that, we see that, yes? Well, here we go. So we're gonna talk first about work. Is there meaning or can we understand what is going on in the concept of what we do every day? Chapter two, verse 18, I hated, this is the preacher talking, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow 
and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So I'm going to start with verse 23, right? Work is a vexation, right? Vexing, frustrating, makes me angry. I don't know what to do with this. Anybody actually experience that at work? Anybody? Yeah, right? I've experienced this. This is personal for me. Remember when I, I kind of introduced this last week, I, go, I really wanted to look through this because I'm sitting at my desk and I'm doing a couple of things and a couple of thoughts are coming to my mind. I'm in the military. All these jobs are temporary. I'm going to do this for like one, two, maybe three years at the most, and then I'm going to move on. I'm going to give it up to somebody else, and I don't know who's coming behind me. This guy might be better than me and might improve the things that I've done, or <laughs> just like in here, who knows if or he will be wise or a fool. I have given jobs up to people who have wrecked everything I built, and then you go, well, why did I do that? I spent two years losing sleep. So my last job, I was a squadron commander. I lost a lot of sleep when I was in that job. Why? Because I wa I was my responsibility to deliver, to deliver a combat capability to somebody who was going to take people, move them forward, and support combat operations, right? We sent people to Somalia. I sent people to uh, support the effort in Ukraine. I sent people into all over Eastern Europe to do deterrence with Russia. And so if I don't get that right, either my people die, no kidding, die, or their incompetence cause other people to die. That's a pretty heavy burden to carry on your shoulders. You got to have a team behind you. I was, had a really thin team, and so you had to build the team, and you're basically building the television while you're watching the television, and you can't miss any of the things that are being shown just as a, a kind of a brief explanation of what I'm going through here. And so I'm losing a lot of sleep. I'm vexed. And then I'm going to leave and I'm going to turn this thing over. And why did I do this if my successor is just going to put it in the mud, right? I hated all my toil, which I toil under, with which I toil under the sun. Anybody else kind of personalize that one too? Does that kind of resonate a little bit? Maybe? Cool, thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I kind of toyed with the idea of like handing a microphone out and go like story time. How many people have identified with this? I'm like, well, maybe that's a bad idea. Probably shouldn't do that right now. So is there any meaning behind that? Like, I see this and it resonates with me and then I go, okay, cool. What's the solution? So I'm tempted to read this like Proverbs. There is nothing better for a person that should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is from the hand of God. Okay, cool. For apart from him, who can eat and who, who can have enjoyment? But again, that kind of makes me feel a little bit better. But if you look in um, verses 21 and 22, you know, this is vanity and a great evil. Uh, but God gave it to you, so it's okay. That's not very satisfying, right? But we identify with this. We see this. We kind of go, yes, I, yes, finally somebody said this, right? About time somebody said that so that we can actually deal with it. It kind of makes sense. Hold that thought. We're going to move on to uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. So turn with me to chapter 7. 
what you're going to see there in, in the first part of chapter 7 is something that looks an awful lot like Proverbs. I'm going to tear that down in just a second. But instead of work now, you're going to be dealing with concepts like your good name. You're going to be dealing with concepts like the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. So listen for that. Starting with verse 1, a good name is better than a precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools, this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise to madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and, that, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you, and your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off, deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Cool. Like I said, we're seeing things in here like the value of a good name, sober-mindedness, wisdom. Um, we think when we see this, we're reading a section out of the book of Proverbs, but we're not. What is the preacher doing here? He is not, if we read this and go, this is Proverbs, he is teaching me. He may be, but what I submit is instead of that, the whole thing, what he's doing through the whole text of this book is he's thinking. He's thinking out loud and wrestling with thoughts and trying to see what do I do with these concepts. And so instead of this, you know, good name is better than precious ointment, which we would agree with, and the day of death better than the day of birth. In Christ, that is 100% correct. Don't think he's thinking from that perspective, though. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. We're tempted to look at that and go, this is a proverb. How do I get truth out of this? And you can but realize that he's not teaching here. He's just thinking out loud. And if we look at the pattern of Proverbs, you see a two parallel phrases, and those phrases are usually, I'm going to state a thing, and I'm going to underscore the thing, and it's going to make a good point and be encouraging. This 
isn't. This is, I'm going to state a thing, I'm going to state a parallel thing that will be pessimistic, and these two uh, ideas are going to clash with one another. A good name is better than the precious ointment. Good thing. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Bad thing, right? That's an example of what we're looking at. And so instead of what, him, what he's doing here is, and we see this and we go, yeah, absolutely, right? A good name is a good thing, but it's not necessarily instruction, but rather the preacher is thinking out loud, trying to get us to wrestle with the, these ideas just like he's wrestling with these ideas. If we look at now uh, all the way into 14, we see that we're talking about good times and bad, and we are, this is one place where we can go, yes, he is saying a true thing. We can draw that out of here a little bit. There, uh, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. I would agree with that. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that you may not find out anything that will be after him. Oh, okay. That seems a bit fatalistic. More on that in a second. In verses 15 to 18, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes and the wicked man prolongs his life in evil doing. I mean, look at the news today, right? We see a lot of evil prospering. That bothers us, yes? Bothers me. And so we look at this and go, yeah, finally, somebody said it. We're gonna have to consider these ideas. That's terrible. But what conclusion does he get to? All the way down to verse 23, 24. All this have I've tested by wisdom, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off, deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So while he's presenting this thing, they'll be go, yeah, good. About time somebody said that, he'll also throw up his hands and go, I don't know. I don't know how to deal with this. It's just bothering me. And it's either vain, utterly meaningless, eh, I don't know what to do. Or, ah, it's just enigma of enigmas, man. I, I've got to figure this thing out, and there might be a meaning here, and I just don't know. And you can kind of see him start to really struggle. Now, we will kind of identify with this kind of a thing, but what we're going to do now is we're going to take this, look at it just a little bit closer, and then contrast it with the rest of Scripture to go, what is this man's real attitude? What is he trying to say? You can see him kind of struggling. I've already hinted at it a little bit. Um, and you can kind of see that he is thinking a little bit differently than he ought to. Versus, um, let's take, first of all, look at his attitudes towards uh, history, God, uh, and death. If you look at verses two or chapter two, verses 18 through 24, and again in seven, one through 23, I'm gonna read a little bit out of seven. Um, and we were warned about this in chapter one, right? We kind of see um, that all things have kind of happened before and they will happy again, happen again. Um, you know, the day of, uh, go to the house of mourning, to the house of feasting, it's the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. So people are just going to be born. They're going to die. They're going to be born. They're going to die. They're going to born. They're going to die. This reminds us of chapter one where, he, where the narrator tells us that he's going to say this. The wind blows to the south and it goes to the north and around goes the wind on its circuits. Streams go to the sea, but the sea's not full and it goes all the way back to where the water cycle is just going to go and go and go, which indicates that the way this guy's looking at history, it's not unfolding in a line. It's going around in a circle. Everything has happened before and it will all happen again. This is not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that history will be consummated in the return of Jesus Christ. At the right time, Christ 
arrived and Christ died for the ungodly. That's a totally um, contra cyclical view of history is totally contrary to the rest of scripture. So this is one of the attitudes he's holding and why, the way he's seeing the world and one of the reasons why he's so confused is the things he's taking a look at. Let's take a look at his uh, attitude towards life. Most of the kinds of things that you're seeing are in the context of death. And I've got a long list of verses there. I'll kind of read one or two to hit the highlights. But he references death directly in those passages there, chapter 2, 12 through 13, 3, 16 through 22, 4, 1 through 3. I'm going to read 4, 1 through 3. Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. We would be tempted to say this, right? Like, oh, so-and-so would turn in his or her grave if they saw that, right? Same kind of a thing. But if you read the rest of them, you just, all this is in the context of death. And it goes to chapter 12, which I'll hit on in a second. Um, but in chapter 12, it's like, you're going to get old. You're going to experience youth. You'll feel good. You're going to get old. It's going to feel terrible. You're going to suffer and languish, and then you're going to die. Vanity. Meaningless. Can't figure it out, right? Um, that's kind of where he goes with this. And if it's not directly referenced, death is indirectly referenced or alluded to in chapter 2, 18 through 23, 3, 9 through 13, 5, 18 through 20, 6, 1 through 6, and you see the rest of them. The tenor you see on those passages is life short. Few days of this vain life, and he'll use that over and over and over again. And so he's not saying you're going to die, but he is saying your life is short and it's vain. Your days are few, right? So what is his attitude? What is his mind? His mind is focused on, I know I'm going to die. One of the other genres this is compared to is the whole dramatic or um, literary pessimism. Egyptian literature has a lot of that, but that directly wrestles with the question of whether or not the author or the reader should kill oneself. This does not. This guy knows that bad things are happening, knows that death is imminent, but he is not going, ah, I probably should just end it. Right? He's struggling with it. He is at least fighting against it, but he just sees it coming and there's nothing he can do about it. And that's kind of the tenor that you're seeing from uh, the preacher. Now, how does he actually view God? If you go back to chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, there's a couple of things where he says, Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. The implication there is that God has made, God has made things crooked. Is that true? No. The testimony of the rest of scripture is that God made things very good and man made it crooked by our sin. And so he has that in his mind, like God has just presented these circumstances. You know, you take the good with the bad. God just did this to you. So, you know, figure it out. He struggles with God's goodness, right? And then he sees that God is basically making the conclusion that God is allowing the wicked to prosper. Like, why are you happy? Well, he made it crooked. So, okay. Um, that's kind of his, his mentality. Therefore, this preacher is really struggling to understand why the world is the way it is and why does it appear so vain? Why does it appear so confusing, right? We are tempted to end that, end our thoughts the way he is because just like we've seen, we can identify with some of the things he says. Life is frustrating. 
We see these things happen. But the point of the book is so that we see this, we see that it clashes with the rest of scripture and we are reminded not to let our minds go there. Turn with me to Psalm 37. So we're going to look at briefly the Old Testament and the New of what the rest of the, of the scripture, I'll use these two as microcosms, uh, both Psalm 37 and 1 Corinthians 15. Psalm 37, of David, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend, brief, <coughs> excuse me, befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth just, uh, righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it only tends to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. I'm going to stop there. If you read the rest of the psalm, what do we see? We see David acknowledging the same things the preacher sees and coming to a hopeful conclusion rather than a hopeless one. We see the wicked do appear to prosper. He's honest about that. He's honest that he doesn't like it. He's also honest that it appears and it is so that the righteous suffer. Yet, the righteous still can and must do good because the Lord will save them. At the end of the psalm, verses 39 and 40, it ends this way. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. So David acknowledges that the, the preacher's struggle even confronts the exact same issues, uh, mostly the wicked prospering and death, but comes to a hopeful conclusion rather than a hopeless one. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read some sections out of this. I'm going to skip the whole baptism from the dead thing. Um, but Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, is now addressing the concept of death, and work. Listen to this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the world, the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who, also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. I'm going to skip to verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the gospel. This is of what's first priority. Can we really know that God acts in this world like the preacher is struggling with? Yes, Christ came. He died. He resurrected. Does our work matter? Yes, Paul talks about in verses 10 through 11 that he worked through God's grace and though it was frustrating, people were saved through it. In chapters, uh, is death the end? Well, no, Christ was raised, therefore we will be raised and then death will die. We will be made imperishable through the work of Christ. Death will have no power. So if we consider back in verse 58 there, now this is the real answer to the preacher. Life, work, trials, they are not in vain. They're not meaningless. They're not utterly enigmatic, undiscernible, unable to be figured out. We instead have victory in Jesus who gives us the ultimate meaning rather than our life's ending in vanity. I'm going to uh, kind of end in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, there are trials, there are testing, there is persecution, but the underscore there is we have a living hope. So therefore, we go all the way back to the end in Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, and where were we supposed to take this? This is why I think it's important to think that there are, there's a bookend here. This is being told to us as a, from a different frame than Solomon trying to teach wisdom. He says this in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. This is the closing narrator. Could be the same person, could be a different one. We don't really know. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard for fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That flies in the face of the rest of the, well, God made the world crooked and we don't know what to do. No, fear God, obey his commandments. That is what we're supposed to take from the rest of the book. So therefore, there's three therefores. Though the world looks meaningless, it looks enigmatic, we identify with the things that are being said, we instead have a living hope in Jesus Christ. And we need a constant reminder of that because we are so tempted to think like that. So this book is in the Bible because God knows that that is where our mind goes when we get down, right? This is meaningless, what do I do? I'm sitting at my desk, I'm about to turn this thing over to somebody who might not do good with it. Ah! No, your work in the Lord is not in vain. This is supposed to point us to the truth that God is sovereign and our work in the Lord is not in vain. So I left myself like two minutes for questions. I'll open up right there. Questions. This might work its way to a question. Uh, thank you for commenting on one of my favorite books of the Bible um, and pointing us towards Christ and heaven. Um, you know, it's a guy named M.M. Klein. He wrote a his PhD thesis on this and uh, basically he says it's commentary on life under the sun under the sun being a sort of non eschatological reality without mm -hmm. access to the ultimate realm yeah but as you were teaching today it just made me think about this from the perspective of human suffering here yeah. we have Solomon this creme de la creme of humanity with wisdom and money and access to all things and his conclusion is it's cyclical who knows if I'm gonna leave this somebody yeah the fool or whatever um, but, you know, in, in terms of that passage that Paul speaks about, that we would fill up the sufferings of Christ, that uh, our labor, our sufferings, et cetera, have meanings because we participate in the life of Christ. We have access to that other world that Solomon couldn't see. The best he could do was possibly nihilism, possibly, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, or possibly, hey, just obey God. But Paul points us to a, that other world. And uh, thank you. Thanks, Dan. Others? Mine's not a question either. Uh, uh, the other way I see Ecclesiastes for our own training is um, personally within my work, a lot of patients come uh, with, the, with this mindset. They have no hope. They don't see any purpose. They have a cancer diagnosis and they will die. Mm -hmm. And why, Dr. Hiles, are you talking about all this stuff? It's just pointless, and yeah. hey, by the way, can you even help me die? Yeah. Um, to not be able to approach 
others who don't necessarily share our hope or and better to share that hope with them yeah. is another strong reason I think Ecclesiastes was given to us in the Bible. Yeah, and I think that's a very good segue to what we're going to talk about next week, which is, hey, believer, this is how we should engage with this. Next week, we're going to take a really close look at what our culture is thinking now and kind of show that this is that mentality, only it's worse because this guy acknowledges that there might be a God doing something. Our culture has removed God from the equation. And so, church, what are we doing about that? And that's kind of what we're going to discuss next week. Appreciate it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Father in heaven, please keep our minds renewed. And I pray, Father, that we would not be tempted to think like the preacher does, that we don't understand why things are happening because they are bad and things frustrate us but rather that is true and you have meaning in it anyhow. And in the Lord, our work is not in vain. Please encourage us with that. Please be with Christian as he preaches on short notice. Please be with Pastor Tim as he is not feeling well. And I pray for our public worship this morning that we would honor you. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.